Sailor's Book Club podcast. This is episode 38 of our Penguin Little Black Classics review show. The march and the journey continues today with Herman Melville's The Maldive Shark, which, to be clear up front, is just the name of a poem. Um, Penguin has collected here three poems, I think maybe a fourth in there, and then a collection of autobiographical writings by Melville about his time as a whaler. Uh, This is an author who is unquestionably most famous for writing Moby Dick, a story that, as I mentioned on last week's episode, a lot of people talk about trying to read and then very few people finish. I think for probably pretty good reason. There's a lot of specific whale talk in there and some whale science that loses uh, many, many readers. But we're here with a different set of works by Melville. Uh, Nothing for Moby Dick today, just a couple other things that Penguin has brought together. Now for today's review... I'm going to continue the, not improvisational streak I've kept going, but this sort of inventive creative streak, and just I'm going to change up the review structure and format. I've decided that I picked up on something as I was reading the Melville and thought, well, I'll just base my review around that. And this will be the idea of the dramatic persona. I went to consult the literary dictionaries on this one because I had an idea of what I thought a dramatic persona was, and I just wanted to make sure that, academically speaking, I was in the right, and I kind of had the right idea. Um, Originally, a dramatic persona refers to a a literal mask or false face, maybe of clay or bark, that could be worn by actors, and that's from the Penguin Literary Dictionary. They tell us that the I or the alter ego who speaks in a poem or novel or other form of literature is the dramatic persona. So not to be confused with the narrator, but instead the direct speaker or the person uh, directly inhabiting the work, it would feel like. And then the Oxford Literary Dictionary says, quote, It should be interpreted as a historical or fictional character, not the author. Some theorists of narrative fiction have preferred to distinguish between the narrator and the persona as well, making the persona the equivalent to the implied author, which apparently was uh, an invented term by Wayne C. Booth in a work called The Narrative of Fiction. And these formal definitions are pretty helpful, but what does this mean practically for me in the for the review? I just noticed that when I was reading these um, cl- this collection by Melville, there were just so many different tones and voices going on. I am granted one of the works, the longest one, is autobiographical, so presumably it's just him speaking to his experience. But even within that, you just have such a richness of different language and different just perspectives and voices. And I, while it might not be as literal as a dramatic persona, um, and I think in his poetry there's no complexity to that, to the narrator versus persona or sort of implied author issues, I just think that the kind of depth of his voice in this reminded me of all the different sort of dramatic persona that a good author can deploy at the same time sometimes even simultaneously in this set and it does um it does serve as a nice reminder of why some of these um authors in the penguin collection and we've already covered so many like nietzsche i think had this quality uh, austin's characters did or narratives did chaucer i thought wife of bath was excellent swift as well but authors we've already covered can have such richness and depth of voice, even in the same literary work, and that, I think, is always something that's going to leave a lasting impression, and it's why something would be considered, I think, a classic in the first place. I know that the Penguin Review set we've been doing in this podcast run we have focuses a lot on older texts, almost exclusively pre 20th century, I think, so far. We might get a little bit past that, but not too much further than that. It seems like Penguin focused on pre-1900s writings. 
And I, you know, some readers and listeners might have issue with that. You might not like exploring the older canon, which I understand. There's plenty of new things coming out. It's hard enough to <laughs> keep up with new releases, let alone classic ones. But the benefit, if I could put it in such a crude and simple way, would be this kind of depth and complexity that you can find and richness in older works. A lot of the times, the narratives were just a little bit... Yeah, I think I'm going to keep saying dense, but I, that, that word might be a little vague. But they can be layered and complex and have different voices and tones and aspects that I just think make them make them classics, make them worth, I don't know, a deeper exploration. And today with Melville, I think that's what we have with these poems and with this collection of autobiographical writing. So without further ado, let's jump right into the actual review. Let's get to analyzing these texts and talking about them. I'm going to talk about the different dramatic persona, or I think it's personae, if it's plural. Well, feel free to send in a corrections email on that. <laughs> but there are, are a few of them that I picked up on that uh, I thought jumped out to me the most in this. And I selected four, I thought there were four that um, kept getting repeated and were interesting. So I'm going to run through those and talk about them, and we'll hopefully get to a review by the end by examining uh, Melville's different voices and personas in this, or personae, in this collection. The first is the voice of the naturalist, which... If you spend your life on ships, you know, adventuring the, the seas and doing whaling, I suppose this probably would be the first one that would be evolved in your writing voice. His opinions on and and ideas about sea creatures, land creatures, air creatures, you know, basically beasts of any, any variety are extensive in this set, especially in his uh, Enchanted Isles writings, which is, again, an autobiographical thing. His thoughts are just extensive and extend to, again, every type of creature. I pulled a quote here from 22 and 3 where he describes birds as woe-begotten in their regiments or as roaming as, quote, bandit birds with long bills cruel as daggers. And this sort of nefarious nature of the natural world, the, the sort of nefarious foundations or dangerous foundations of nature are kind of present throughout he does though have kind of a seafarer's practical or pragmatic eye as well he views i think at times nature as sort of a tool or you know views it in sort of this practical way and just looks at it in terms of survival and and you know i think again if you're coming off of a whaling ship in the 1800s this very much fits in terms of tone and topic on page 40 and this comes up a lot weirdly tortoises he talks a lot about tortoises but he says, quote on 40, Tortoises good for food, trees good for fuel, and long grass good for bedding abound here, and there are plenty of pretty natural walks and several landscapes to be seen. That's um, to describe one of the islands, one of the enchanted isles that he sort of travels past and moves past in his adventures. It's a, you know it's a rather pragmatic, but I like the um, I like the bit at the end about the natural scenery because yeah though it's a rather pragmatic quote he definitely has moments to appreciate the beauty around him and again it strikes me as sort of the naturalist appreciation of the of the world that he's so embedded in and the the poetry as well has a bit of this again there are, I think three or four poems in the beginning of this set and this is where more of the fear and danger aspect of nature can can come to the fore i think he acknowledges them often in in all of the works and has these sort of behavioral observations as well intertwined um this is from the poem the maldive shark which the title is named for he says quote 
from his saw pit of mouth, from his charnel of maw, they have nothing to harm, oh, nothing of harm to dread, but liquidly glide on his ghastly flank or before his gorgonian head, or lurk in the port of serrated teeth in white triple tiers of glittering gates, and there find a haven when perils abroad, an asylum in jaws of the fates. Now that's obviously a classics or a heavy classical heavy Greek, you know, illusion heavy bit of poetry, but I think it's a fascinating transition and kind of blends well these, again, very natural observations about the uh, biology of the shark, the teeth, the the flank, the, the colors, but then it also blends in, you know, references to mythology and fate and death, and it just has that voice, those voices kind of intermingling in a way that is just, I think, really fascinating to read, and he just clearly has such an eye for observing the natural world, though let's transition to his second persona, which I've named three things here, which is the the woeful persona or the fearful persona or the brutal or brutalist persona, I think would be the most extreme one, because none of his examinations here in the collection are 100% celebratory or this is not someone looking at the, the just the wonders and beauty of nature, but also the horror and danger of it as well. He describes uh, buccaneering or pirating as as follows on 42 he says persecution or adversity or secret and unavengeable wrongs had driven men from christian society to seek the melancholy solitude or the guilty adventures of the sea and i think both attitudes in that quote are perfectly summarized there it's either going to be a melancholy view or there's a kind of guilty adventure some um, attitude about it and even when he's enjoying the life or enjoying the the pirating there is a sign of sign of guilty a guilty or regretful tone about him and about the writing. One of his most just brutal uh, takedowns is of penguins. It's an extensive uh, quote about them. He, he truly, truly loathes these creatures, which is just so odd. They're like a elementary school favorite. They're the penguins are like the darlings of you know. If you go to a zoo trip with young kids, it's like penguins are the cutest, goofiest creatures, uh, animals. But he has the most brutal takedown of them which again paints him in in this sort of persona of this kind of woeful man just wondering at god's creations he says on 22 quote what outlandish beings are these erect as men but hardly as symmetrical they stand all round the rock like sculpted carotids their bodies are grotesquely misshapen their bills short their feet seemingly legless while the members at their sides are neither fin, wing, nor arm. And yes, it's a bit of a, prag- or not pragmatist, but a bit of a utilitarian's description of the creatures, and I think Darwin himself would have pointed out probably what made them adapt so well to their environment, you know, the harsh conditions they lived in, but his kind of just complete, he almost has this defeated-sounding tone, this total bafflement at the existence of these penguins, that makes him come across again in terms of dramatic persona as he's just sort of throwing his hands in the air and just saying, ah, nature, you're, you unconquerable, unknowable beast, look at you, you're disgusting, you know, vile creature to make such a thing. And it may come across as uh, tonally a bit exaggerative, but I just loved reading it. It's such a bizarre, again, compared to where we're at uh, with penguins in 2020, those lovable little goofballs, um, it's such a bizarre perspective and again has a very adventurous but then fearful kind of tone underlying it 
And the same voice, to be fair, is present for, for the people, the humans he describes, the pirates and buccaneers. There's some like exceptionally violent kind of macabre scenes in the set, especially, again, in his autobiog- uh, autobiographical writings. He describes an encounter um, of between two men by saying, or actually, it's, I take that back. It's not between two men. I pulled a quote of a pirate who is forced to kill a seal because, for food because he's about to starve. And he says about this encounter on 53. The man rushed upon it, stabbed it in the neck, and in throwing himself upon the panting body, quaffed at the living wound. The palpitations of the creature's dying heart injected life into the drinker. I mean, yeesh. It's like invoking these images of like blood sacrifice and kind of a demonic ritual quality to it and this passing of life. It's just really an intense, it's such an intense description, such a fierce scene. And these are, I wouldn't say, you know, that's not common to the rest of the collection, but a quote like that, I think, again, tonally represents kind of this persona that he puts on where you presented with the kind of raw, brutal aspect of nature. By now, you may have sort of inferred the uh, third persona I'm going to dig into here that Melville has, and that is the Christian. He certainly, and I did actually no Wikipedia research for this episode, so pat on my own back for that. As you know, if you've listened to us before, our uh, research department is pretty underfunded, but (laughs) sometimes we'll do the occasional search or two. But I felt like I had known Melville well enough from reading his poetry. And then again, everyone knows Moby Dick, at least they know roughly what it is. And so I didn't look up to see his own personal history with religion, his beliefs, or whether he wavered as a Christian or he was a lifelong Christian or something. But in this set, if you were just to read The Enchanted Isles or some of this poetry, he would come across as a pretty devouted, probably God-fearing sort of Christian man. And I think you get some duality in that. I think there's the aspect of God as a peaceful force to be respected or desired. And that comes up immediately in one of the poems. He says, a dreamier sleep, the trance of God instills. And then it goes on to sort of talk about how there's the there are these hills and that they have the energy and the atmosphere of a, of a peaceful sleeper, a dreamer like God would want. Later when he's describing in sort of his naturalist way, a bird that he admires and he's doing this broader observation of all these different birds that live on this one island, and they're all interacting, and it's a bit chaotic. He says on 24, quote, I gaze far up and behold a snow-white angelic thing with one long lance-like feather thrust out behind. It is the bright and spiriting Chanteleclair of the ocean, the beauteous bird from its bestirring whistle of musical invocation, fitly styled the boatswain's mate, or boatswain's mate, which apparently I did some Googling on that word, um, Chanticleer, which is a uh, rooster. I think that's just a French word for a rooster. Uh, but it's noteworthy there that he reserves, I think, maybe his only line of praise about that scene, about the chaos of the, all these birds and the, the howling and the sound of it. I think his only moment of praise is for a snow-white angelic thing. The symbolism or, you know, uh, colors therein it don't require really any interpretation. It's a sign of peace and sort of in a chaotic, maybe even dangerous place, spiritually anyway, it's a sign of peace. These, though, do eventually, kind of these examples, these moments do, I think, give way to that more woeful, fearful voice again, and his his Christian side or his Christian persona is, I think, a fearful one and has these sort of moments of reckoning with the natural world. 
On page 8, you immediately get a quote that says, In no world but a fallen one could such lands exist. And that's about the most perfect summation of his entire attitude towards one of these enchanted isles as, as could be found. I think that quote is the perfect encapsulation of his attitude and his feeling. And it just stands as sort of a welcoming to what his interpretation or what his feelings for this place will be. He later describes the the world in a similar way. Again, he's um, describing the stupidity of the tortoises that they capture and the sort of stubbornness of them. On page 17, he says, Their crowning curse of the tortoise, their crowning curse is their drudging impulse to straightforwardness in a belittered world. And it just feels extra harsh to, to drag the innocent tortoise into our sinful fallen state but his uh his writings about nature and his kind of attitude and and opinion about nature fit that tone throughout and i think his his viewer perspective as a christian again does have that duality to it but he mostly struck me as a god-fearing person throughout the text and sort of being intimidated almost by the creation of god and the the world that was left to to all people to man Uh, But let's not end on such a grim note. I did find one other kind of thread and one dramatic persona voice that he adopted throughout that I, to me, made the collection kind of put it over the top. And at this point, if you haven't been inferring or predicting, let's just say it. This is a three. I think everyone should go try and find this Enchanted Isles collection by Melville. Maybe not the poetry, but I would heartily recommend reading the the Enchanted Isles like autobiographical writings of him. I think they're just a perfect introduction to his style. They, again, are just rich with different voices and, and perspectives. And, you know, at the very least, you're going to come away with some kind of firsthand account of a naturalist or of a whaler in the uh, 19th century, which is I think just kind of fascinating, and the writing is pretty, at times it can be dense, you know, and it doesn't fully escape the stylistic trappings of its time, but it's also, I found it just very brisk to read, I found it a very quick and quick-moving sort of narrative, and so I'm going to give this a strong three, I'll loop back around um, at the end to that, but that's all just to build up and say I I don't think this would have been such, I don't think I would have felt so strongly about recommending it, except for this final voice, which is the humorist. His, his final, final dramatic persona, in my mind, was his humor. And I, I again, would re- return to the just all-time takedown of penguins. Like, really, just yeesh, man. It's, it was funny and at times hyperbolic and absurd, but then it felt so sincere. And just the way he could vacillate in voice between these like pretty legitimate criticisms to just kind of going into hyperbole and just being kind of ludicrous maybe again that's me interpreting that but I found it to be such a just a fun and interesting little read and you know no harm no foul to penguins I guess and at times yes he does delve into the horrifying and he does want to portray these enchanted isles these these series and groups of islands as these sort of desolate lands or these dangerous lands forsaken by by nature and god and yeah it can feel pretty intense at times but there's also just this sort of accuracy to it, or again, he has that naturalist voice that comes through where you you can't quibble with some of the specific observations he makes, maybe his opinions or the way he elaborates upon them, you know, you might dislike his writing style, but he just feels like he's doing this sort of accurate depiction with his, you know, tones sort of layered on top. And again, on the humor side, he coins the term riotocracy when he's describing a failed 
a democratic governmental experiment on one of the aisles where a pirate king kind of gets deposed by the people he's ruling over. There's this little five-page kind of description of this failed governmental experiment on an island, which I just found like a really fascinating short story within a story. And it, yeah, it devolves into a riotocracy. He calls the deposed king or leader of that the Nimrod King, which is, I think, a pretty solid nickname, to be honest. I might try and take that one or just opt into that one for myself. In addition to just having those bits of humor, too, they're also just such smart little kind of, I'm going to say wise, which feels like a bit of a broad blanket statement again, but just these, you know, wise and calm observations about human behavior in the world. At one point, he had this line that I loved on page 35 about saying that you only see in in the blood of men in these places, um, in the aisles, you see that pirates and, and poets, or he says, it runs in the blood and may be seen in pirates as in poets, the sort of passion and the sort of unmitigated or unchecked passion. And I thought that was such a nice drawing together of his own personae or persona here in that he's he has this poetic nature, but also this kind of inclination to see brutal things and see violence and things and this sort of wild pirate nature. And now, as I already mentioned, I think this is completely a three. Um, these poems, The Maldives Shark, and actually, let me just look them up quickly for you. I'll, can, I can list off the titles of them. So the three poems in the front were The Maldives Shark, The Berg, which is parentheses a dream, and then The Enviable Isles, which is from Ramon or Raman. Those are the poems. Those I thought were, were pretty good. I don't think I would recommend, you know, you have to go read those now, but I thought they were, you know, pretty solid. They're also not long. They're pretty brief. I think to me the must-read from this is The Enchanted Isles or The uh, Encantadas. Encantadas. It's been a long time since I took Spanish, so apologies for butchering that. But he has these ten sketches, these kind of short observations. They're each, you know, five to seven pages in my book about the isles and his travels through them. Um, I did weirdly skip, or the Penguin set, not me, but the Penguin set skipped the eighth and ninth sketches, so I guess I can't review or speak to those. But overall, the the rest of them, the set as a whole, I think, again, I would strongly recommend as a three. I think you can find this online for free. Most of Melville's work is because it's out of copyright. So you can go Google that. I think it would make for a great afternoon of reading. Again, nothing too overly long doesn't overstay its welcome. And yeah, I think there's just so many different voices, perspectives to get out of it that it's a truly enjoyable read. I pulled a quote here from, from the collection itself from 21 that I want to end with because I think it's fittingly the best description I could have of the, his own writing. He's describing the Isles as the following. He says, quote, The twilight was just enough to reveal every striking point without tearing away the dim investiture of wonder. And that's how I felt coming out of this. I felt like there were wonders, there were things described that I thought were it sounded foreign, bizarre, but also familiar. And I think his writing just reveals enough. It's just intense enough at times. The tone kind of kind of pushes you at times, but then it, it pulls back at the right moments or maybe shifts a little bit. And so, yeah, I found it, again, to use his own quotes, very striking, but it didn't he doesn't overstay its welcome, and he doesn't overwrite, which I think can be a kind of a blanket criticism for older works of literature from different time periods. So, highly recommend the Herman Melville this week. I'm actually sincerely thrilled to have a three that I can recommend again, and on our system, that's you know, in our rating scale, that's the highest recommendation. It's a must-read, and I think. Yeah, with the ease of access that this has and the way you can just find it online and the kind of brevity of it and everything, I think it's well worth your time. 
And yeah, we're back in the three zone, people. This is exciting times for the podcast, for the reviews. Will next week live up to the Melville hype from this week? I guess you'll just have to tune in to find out. We do have an author coming up who I'd never read before. Gaskell is her name. She's a Victorian or, you know, was a Victorian writer and apparently does some kind of gothic fiction. I'm very early in that collection. I have only just started the first few pages, so I won't give anything away. Um, We may also have a supplemental podcast coming up next week as well because our friend of the podcast, Amanda, wants to join me for for some additional Gaskell readings, and so we might do some additional stuff and put up a double episode next week. So be excited for that. As always, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we will see you between the classics. (laughs) 